I know I seem to say this every year, but this Christmas really seems to have crept up on me. And, you know, until a couple of weeks ago, I'd done bugger... Well, in fact, to be honest, until the beginning of this week, I'd done absolutely bugger all in terms of preparations. I mean, only sort of struck me that Christmas is coming when I realised that I'd undoubtedly... Um, missed the last posting date for presents for relatives living overseas. Which, of course, at the time I realised that was entirely academic because I hadn't even, at that point, bought said presents. Anyway, I blame my lack of awareness of the approach of the festive season on the lousy TV Christmas TV commercials we've suffered this year. But they all seem far too low-key to register on my consciousness okay so i know there have been christmas decorations up in the local shopping mall for weeks now which really should have alerted me to the proximity of yule time but they go up earlier every year so i pay no attention not even the appearance of those little wooden huts full of traders selling overpriced seasonal tat in the town center registered on me let alone the appearance of the rival cheese sauce that we have every year and the German sausage stall. Somehow, it all got past me without registering this year. That said, you know, I have given it a bit more thought now, and I'm, I'm almost close to deciding which film I'm going to watch on Christmas Day. But, as I've speculated before, my relatively, relative indifference towards Christmas these days might well be down to the fact that I'm no longer doing that lousy job from hell that blighted my life for years. Back then, the Christmas break represented an oasis of relief from the utter, seemingly unrelenting shit. It held out the promise of a few days of time to myself when I wasn't at work's beck and call, when I could just relax. Now, without that millstone around my neck, my stress levels have fallen virtually to zero, and I feel relaxed all year round. So Christmas no longer represents a vital lifeline for me, and thus passes by almost unnoticed. Well, that's my theory, at least. Whatever the reason, you know, I really, next year I'm going to have to get organised better. The trouble is, though, that December is also the month when all manner of other things come due and have to be dealt with. I mean, the car's MOT, for instance, which I, I, I did manage to get it through. And I tell you something, next time I buy a car, I'm really going to have to make sure that its MOT comes due earlier in the year. Pay a visit to Curry's this Christmas. Come on, it's over here. And you really won't yeah, believe your eyes. Would you like to buy a dishwasher? Well, I've heard this hot plant's very good. It is excellent. You'll find an incredible choice of top names. Gotta get one of these new CDs. All with service to match. <laughs> and we'll deliver morning or afternoon for just a little extra. We've got all the latest models. <laughs> it's got three different wash programs. And because we're Curry's, you'll always find great value for money. I know, but they made it all so easy. Curries, you'll like the difference. <laughs> Lucy, it is you. Curries. Oh, terrific. Come and join us. Sorry, I'm looking for Harvey. Who? Well, good luck in this lot. <laughs> Lucy, hi. Did you find your friend, Harvey? Yes. What did he come as? Glass of sherry. Oh, brilliant. 
Drink Harvey's Bristol Cream. Pain's just Brazils. The most Brazil Brazils of all. You give them because you love them. Do you know, I found myself recently watching Irwin Allen's 1960 production of The Lost World yet again. The experience left me wondering just why I keep watching this film. It regularly turns up on digital channels like Talking Pictures TV and Legend, often, and I often catch the beginning or end of it as I channel surf. Yet I couldn't resist watching a version I found on an obscure Roku ch- streaming channel. As I sat through the scratchy pan and scan and probably pirated version they were offering, punctuated every few minutes by the same ad over and over again, I was left pondering what it is that brings me back time and again to certain films. Because I'm sure that we all have a number of movies that we frequently re-watch, either intentionally because we have it on DVD or Blu-ray, or by happenstance because it turns up on a TV channel we have access to. My own list of such films has varied, ranging from the, uh, 1960s The Magnificent Seven to The House of Frankenstein from 1944, and taking in all manner of other stuff from art house films to British sex comedies of the 70s along the way. Some of them I watched for pure nostalgia. House of Frankenstein, for instance, was the first classic horror movie I remember seeing as a child. Will others have an emotional attachment for me, being associated with significant events in my life? Others irrationally move me to particular emotional states for no particular reason. But nostalgia doubtless plays a part in my obsession with the lost world. I recall first seeing it as a child, but that alone doesn't seem a good enough reason for my continued viewing of the film. In part, it comes down to the fact that I'm a sucker for dinosaur films especially those involving evolution-defying lost worlds. But the lost world isn't even a good example of the genre. It isn't even a very good adaptation of Arthur Conan Doyle's novel. I mean, it doesn't even have proper dinosaurs, just photographically enlarged lizards with rubber fins, horns and frills stuck on them. None of them looked remotely like any known species of dinosaur. That said, The actual photographic effects by which they interact with the human actors are excellent. But not only does it have fake dinosaurs, but it skimps on them. A common fault of Lost World adaptations. Just look at those two Harry Allen Towers adaptations from the 90s. And it gives us ultimately only four different dino lizards that I recall, none of which are really integral to the plot. Indeed, the whole thing feels like an exotic jungle adventure picture into which some dinosaurs have been rather arbitrarily inserted. It's as if the producers thought that a standard adventure picture was really what audiences wanted to see, rather than those dinosaurs, which obviously is the opposite of reality. We go to see a film called The Lost World because we want to see dinosaurs. Proper dinosaurs. Lots of proper dinosaurs. They're the film's sole raison d'etre, as far as audiences are concerned. Of course, the reason why the dinosaurs are underwhelming and peripheral comes down to budget. Those photographically enlarged lizards are cheaper and quicker to create than stop-motion dinosaurs, the only viable alternative for realistic dinosaurs in 1960. Even then, they are still going to eat up a significant chunk of budget, so their appearances are restricted, 
recoup some of those costs, those dinosaur sequences inevitably end up being used as stock footage in other productions. In this regard, The Lost World came along at the right time. For years, the dinosaur footage, also photographically enlarged lizards, from 1 million BC, back in 1940, had been the go-to source for prehistoric monsters for low-budget productions. But they were in black and white, and by the 60s, even B-movies were mainly in colour. So the deluxe colour lizards from the Irwin Allen film replaced them as the favoured dinosaur stock footage for several years. Irwin Allen himself recycled this footage at least three times in episodes of his Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea series, and it helped there that David Hedison starred in both The Lost World and the TV series, so he was easy to match up. I'm pretty sure that, that, that it was also used in at least one episode of Alan's The Time Tunnel, where parts of the footage turn up in films like When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth, made in 1970, in that case supplementing Jim Danforth's stop-motion dinosaurs. Interestingly, the set-piece dinosaur sequence from The Lost World the fight between the lizard with the frill and plates on its back and the small crocodile with horns and a fin, is clearly modelled on a similar sequence in 1 million BC, using the same camera angles and framing shots in much, of, in much the same way. Seen today, actually, both these sequences appear quite disturbing, with the animals tearing chunks out of each other in what to them was clearly a fight to the death. But sadly, animal cruelty was common in filmmaking back then. Maybe it is the fact that the dinosaur footage became so familiar to me, which makes me keep watching The Lost World. It is somehow reassuring, and seeing it again reminds me of all those other TV shows and films that it had featured in. Then again, maybe I just like cheesy or B-movies, particularly those like The Lost World, which are dressed up with an A-movie budget and cast. Not to mention production values. But there you go. greatest moment of your lives. There it is, directly ahead. A body of land uplifted by volcanic eruption a hundred million years ago. The land where monsters lived. you're heading out of this world by jet airliner, by hydroplane, by helicopter, into the wildest of all jungles, into the forbidding headwaters of the Amazon. With Michael Rennie, Jill St. John, David Hedison, Claude Rains, Fernando Lamas, and Frosty the Poodle, as they discover a primitive world exactly the way it was at the dawn of time in the most fantastic of adventure stories. For me, the story started three years ago when Burton White came to me. He told me of how in some Indian village out here in the jungle, he'd met a fever-stricken white man who babbled on about a plateau with monsters and diamonds. Here is the most amazing of all possible worlds. You'll see man-eating vines that lure their prey, spiders as tall as trees, hair-raising attack by prehistoric monsters. Ah! 
battle of the titans to the death. The most terrible creatures of destruction that ever walked the earth. You'll flee through grotesque underground mazes from cannibals who demand human sacrifice. Sacrifice? The place they undoubtedly plan to kill you. No, not me, please, ah! You'll be among the first mortals to cross the graveyard of the damned. You'll scale the incredible wall of death. You'll face the terrors of the cave of fire with its lake of molten lava, its fabulous pyramid of diamonds. And you'll be stunned by the horrifying 100-foot fire monster that guards a king's ransom in treasure. go through this one more time. We do not directly elect prime ministers in this country. In fact, we don't elect any national government office holders directly. So please, please stop going on about Sunak, Rishi Sunak being an unelected prime minister, as if this somehow undermines his legitimacy and disqualifies him from introducing any kind of contentious legislation or commenting on world events in his official capacity. All you're doing is revealing your own ignorance. I mean, really, how can you expect to be taken seriously as any kind of political commentator, analyst or activist if you don't even understand the political system you're supposedly critiquing? You do know, don't you, that we have a parliamentary democracy in the UK, that, uh, that any all any prime minister needs to be able to command a majority, all any prime minister needs is to be able to command a majority, whether by outright having the most seats for their party or via a coalition in the House of Commons. That's all it requires to give them legitimacy. In fact, constitutionally speaking, a prime minister doesn't actually have to be an elected member of the Commons. They could sit in the Lords, which is plenty of precedence. Or, technically, they don't even have to sit in Parliament at all just so long as they have sufficient support there to pass legislation and win votes of confidence. It is only a convention that dictates nowadays that the Prime Minister is expected to be a sitting MP. There is still no requirement, even by convention though, that any of the cabinet he or she appoints has to be a member of Parliament, an MP. So it's no good keep banging on about Lord David Cameron being an unelected Foreign Secretary either. I'm not defending Sunak and his crowd in any way here, but the fact is that, like it or not, they are the legitimate government of the UK by virtue of the fact that they have a majority in, in the parliament that was elected, because that's all we elect in the UK, a parliament. That's why it's called a parliamentary democracy. The fact that so many people, that there are so many people out there who seem to think they're politically savvy, who don't even seem to grasp these basic facts, is something I find deeply depressing. Clearly, they've never studied politics or history, which, taught properly, covers the evolution of the UK's political system. 
In truth, though, they probably never had an opportunity to study politics, which in our education isn't taught as a separate subject in its own right until A-level, and many never reach this level. Even if they do, nowadays they're discouraged from studying anything other than maths or sciences. God forbid that people be given an understanding of our political system, eh? They might not vote the right way if they did, though. Now, I don't want to be one of those bores who drones on about how it was all better when I was a lad. But, as already mentioned, when I was at school, even at O-level, and that's GCSE for you young, young people, we had a history curriculum that taught us the basics of our parliamentary democracy and how it evolved. I'm not sure that students nowadays even get that. It's too traditional an approach to history, apparently. Judging by the gaps in the knowledge of first-year A-level politics students the last time I taught any, that is. But to bring us back around to my original point, if you're going, going to go into the pub, or more likely these days onto social media, and start shooting your mouth off about politics, at least have the decency to make sure that you know what you're talking about. Otherwise, you're going to just come off as being an ignorant pillar. People of Great Britain, this is your Prime Minister speaking. I am giving the incumbent Prime Minister exactly 30 minutes in which to publicly tender his resignation. Oh, I like the way you walk. Sammy Davis Jr. Like the way you talk. Now stop. Go. Peter Lawford. As salt and pepper. I pepper you salt. You and me against all of them guys? Oh, you're looking at a very unhappy African. Salt and pepper. Strike! The heroes who held the fate of the world in their hands and dropped it. I saw this movie once. Oh, no. Now no. listen, please. In a private room of a London club, Salt and Pepper. Oh, I wasn't imagining things. He was dead how to get in the bathroom. Maybe he wasn't feeling well. As I was saying, you dare to challenge the Marquis de Bain. Aha! Beat, pass, send you a slant to throw. Then, as I end the refrain, aha! Watch this one, baby. Here it come. Thrust home. Pepper! Where are you? In the hallowed halls of higher education. Over here! What are you doing in that tower? Salt and pepper. I saw this movie once where two guys were... Bring it on up! Hey, Chris. I saw a movie once where two guys were in a cellar like this. Now see if my karate lessons pay off. Just watch. Aboard an atomic submarine. Hey! Salt and pepper. And in the turned-on clubs of Soho. I saw a movie once where two guys went into a barber shop and they sat down in the chair. What happened? They were just sitting yeah! Salt and pepper are into big stuff. I was a fag for two years when I was here. Don't buy me! So you've gone over. Salt and pepper. Together, unshakable. Do you remember that movie you were telling me about? Yeah. Two men in the barber chairs? Mm-hmm. Well, do me a favor, don't tell me the ending.
pepper and salt. You know, the next time, I'm going to get the girl. That's definite. Shot during 1967's Summer of Love, released the following year, Salt and Pepper from 1968 is one of those star vehicle swinging London comedy thrillers that seemed to be so popular in the late 60s. Headlined by Sammy Davis Jr. and Peter Lawford, it proved very popular upon its release, popular enough to spawn a sequel, 1970s One More Time. Yet, it seems to have been quickly forgotten. It certainly doesn't seem to get the airplay accorded some of its contemporaries, never seeming, seeming to turn up on nostalgia TV channels, for instance. But having recently seen the film, it's hard to see why. All the ingredients are there. Bantering superstar leads, 60s Soho setting, several decently staged action scenes, an intriguing plot premise, and a supporting cast packed full of well-known British character actors. On top of that, it clearly had a decent budget, reflected in the excellent production values, an occasionally witty and always clever script from Michael Pertwee, and some assured and efficient direction from Richard Donner, taking charge of only his second feature film here. One of the film's most interesting features is that, rather than the usual focus on hippies, happenings, psychedelia, and other swinging London cliches, the film focuses on the Soho club scene for its background, with the eponymous club run by Davis's Charles Salt and Lawford's Chris Pepper seemingly catering to a far more middle-class clientele, which is one of the nowadays often forgotten aspects of the real swinging 60s. It was largely a middle-class phenomenon enjoyed primarily by those who could afford its trappings of drugs dropping out and free love. Indeed, Salt and Pepper themselves, played by Davis and Lawford, are slight variations on their usual screen personas, pretty much, and they themselves pretty much embody the true face of swinging London, a pair of middle-aged chances who have seized upon the permissive society as an opportunity to set up their nightclub packed full of exotic dancers, groovy decor and modern music, and, and then make some money off of it. The portrayal of Soho is also interesting. Rather than the fantasy version, packed full of hippies, miniskirts, guys dressed like Sergeant Pepper, and colourful boutiques, Donna chooses instead to give us something closer to the actual Soho of 1967, somewhat run down, decidedly grimy, and full of shops and stalls selling overpriced 60s tat. Which isn't to say that Salt and Pepper doesn't offer the viewers plenty of swinging 60s trappings. The central car chase, for instance, features Davis's yellow customised mini moat being chased through Soho by the bad guys in the Mark II Jaguar. Various Ford Zephyrs and Vauxhalls get forced off the road or bashed into in the course of the chase. I mean, it doesn't come much more 60s than that. What the film catches best about the era is the way in which the modernity of the swinging 60s coexisted side by side with more traditional British institutions, public schools, gentlemen's clubs and the like, all carry on as if nothing outside of them has changed. Government ministers and senior policemen are all middle-class and middle-aged establishment figures uniformly dressed in sober conventional suits. The more things change, the more they stay, say, the, more they stay the same, as they say. Obviously, the central focus of the film, not to mention its raison d'etre, is the interplay between the two stars. 
Well, this is indeed entertaining. To Director Donner's credit, he never allows the wisecracking to overwhelm the plot, allowing a fairly complicated plot to unfold at the same time. That said, the nature of the plot and the sometimes surprisingly hard-aged action sequences do frequently jar with the jokiness of the stars and the various comedic antics of their police nemesis, Inspector Crab. In places, the film is surprisingly violent, with a very high body count. The plot itself, which sees the two club owners unwittingly stumbling into an attempt to overthrow the British government in an armed coup involving nuclear blackmail, also touches on surprisingly serious subject matter for this sort of film. I mean, their involvement is instigated by the dying words of a stabbed girl found in Davis's apartment, an apparent reference to the 39 Steps, of course. Anyway, the, the conflicting nature of the various plot elements of various elements of the film is, is perhaps the movie's main flaw. They can never quite settle down to be one thing or another, seemingly undecided as to whether it wants to parody the whole spy genre. I mean, Davis's mini moke with all its 007-style gadgets, none of which quite works as it should, suggest parody. Or to present a serious thriller with comedic elements, as the various murders and violence, violent fights suggest. There are times when the elements feel like an uneasy fit. Nevertheless, Donna drives it all along at a good pace, which helps distract from its absurdities, moving smoothly from one set piece to the next. He also handles the script's various pieces of misdirection, designed to keep the audience guessing as to what's really going on with the plomb. For a fair amount of the running time, like the main characters, the viewer can't be entirely clear as to who is working for who and exactly who the good guys are. Is it the government is the government behind what is going on, or is it a third party? The film is very much of its time. Sexism and misogyny abound, and there are, inevitably, in view of Davis's presence, a fair number of race gags. Although, with regard to the latter, it has to be said that Sammy Davis generally comes out on top in, in these. There's also a fair amount of humour derived from Davis's misunderstanding of various English colloquialisms, in, in particular the use of the term fag when he and Lawford visit the latter's old school. In a refreshing break from the usual portrayals of the police and British films of this era, the cops on display here are not just incompetent, but bent as well. Some things never change, it seems. By his own admission, Detective Inspector Crabb is prepared to fabricate evidence and lie in the witness box in order to secure a conviction. He even has a whole network of unauthorised bugs set up across Soho, which are eventually used by Davis to feed him misinformation. With regard to the coup plot, it is interesting to note at the time the film was made, Harold Wilson's Labour government was in power, Yet the government of the film portrayed as the usual sort of establishment figures. Nonetheless, one is left wondering whether Pertwee's script was in any way inspired by the various rumours of plots to stage military coups against Wilson, supposedly organised by dissident military leaders and right-wing businessmen, which swirled around his various ministries well into the 70s. The film looks good from its not-so-glamorous Soho locations to Pepper's old school and an impressive-looking military college where the coup's base and the film climaxes. The school uh, sequences are actually filmed quite close to where I live now, the Eltham Hall, which I'm quite familiar with and is now a hotel. 
The cast is first-rate, even down to the minor roles, which, as noted, are all played by recognisable British character actors. Crab is, put, is played with malevolent relish by Michael Bates, while Graham Stark portrays his hapless assistant. John Le Majorier is very effective as a black eye patch sporting villain, while Ernest Clark turns up as a British intelligence chief who might or might not be trusted by our heroes. Ivor Dean, who is best known as Inspector Teal in the Saint TV series, is the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, while Oliver McGreevy, one of British film's most notable heavies in this era, with notable appearances in The Ypcris File in 1965 and When Eight Bells Told in 1971, portrays an assassin with more dialogue than he usually got in films, actually. Robertson Hare also turns up as Pepper's former headmaster. The whole film, though, rests on the performances of the leads, who deliver exactly the sorts of performances expected of them. Sammy Davis is all singing, all dancing, wisecracking and full of manic energy, while Lawford, as befits his image as an upper-class smoothie, spends his time womanising and looking louche. But they do it very well, and are enormously charismatic, the characters complementing each other perfectly. Ultimately, your enjoyment of salt and pepper will be very dependent upon whether you like Sammy Davis and Peter Lawford. Now, personally, I'm a big fan of Davis, and have always felt Lawford somewhat underrated. He may have been something of a cut-price David Niven, but he was a good cut-price Niven. It will also help if, like me, you were fascinated by Britain in the 60s, particularly the so-called swinging 60s, as the picture serves up a magnificent slice of the era. But it's also of some interest to the film historian representing Richard Donner's first attempt at the comedy-action-thriller formula he was eventually to perfect with the Lethal Weapon films. Most of all, Salt and Pepper is a hugely likeable film, Despite its unevenness of tone, it delivers both comedy and thriller, carried along both by well-staged action scenes and enjoyable performance from both stars and supporting cast. Besides, how can anyone possibly dislike a film that casts dear old Robert Robinson Hare as a right-wing coup plotter? Where are you going for Christmas? I'm going to Ramblows, Sega computers, finish shave shavers, Scotch videotapes, Southwestern Bell phones. It's for you. Poured out on top of Christmas pudding. Fresh cream tastes extremely goody. Who got the sixpence? I scrape the cream. For free earrings, with these and more, and up to £20 off a future jewellery purchase. Argos takes care of it. You know when it's Christmas, don't you? Because the newspapers basically get to that stage where they give up on actually bothering to, you know, fill their pages with, with, you know, proper stories and whatever, and start instead to fill them up with festive bollocks. All those nice fluffy articles about, you know, what's the best Christmas present to buy your cat and whatever. But before they get that, get to that stage, there's other little stage, a couple of weeks before Christmas, where they instead run articles that pretend to be lifestyle advice, but a really seasonal filler still. Hence, the other week we had the Guardian's G2 supplement reassuring us that skipping the office Christmas party won't necessarily be taken as a, sli as a, as a slight or 
adversely affect your promotion prospects. This was followed up a few days later by a piece on how to say no at this time of year in order to avoid getting stressed out by accepting too many commitments. Well, no shit, Sherlock, was my reaction. I mean, as I've chronicled in the past, I spent decades not going to office Christmas parties. The very first one I ever went to put me off a life, and I never attended another. Interestingly, though, contrary to the article, my always polite turnings down of invitations was sometimes taken as some kind of slight against colleagues. Despite my assurances that it was nothing personal, I just didn't like office functions of any kind. Luckily, however, I never had any promotion prospects, so regardless of their reactions, my career was never affected. But turning down those invitations, and they weren't always just for workplace parties. When I was working in Whitehall, I once declined the opportunity to attend a Christmas party at the US Embassy in favour of going down my local pub for a few pints with friends instead. Anyway, turning down, as, as I say, Turning them all down taught me how easy it actually is to say no to work-related stuff. For quite a while I was good at it, but then seemed to lose the knack and ended up covering other people's jobs for no extra money, but for extra hours instead. Eventually, of course, this contributed to my stress problems, which in turn led to a bout with serious illness and three months off work sick, so rather backfired on my employers. When I got back to work, I started saying no again in self-defence. It's surprising, though, how easy it is to say no and turn stuff down once you get over the idea that we seem to have been indoctrinated with. Any kind of refusal is somehow impolite and selfish, but really it isn't. Doing stuff just because you feel you have some vague social obligation to do so is just crazy and a sure road to unhappiness. Do stuff because you want to do it. I mean, OK, I know there are things you either are obligated to do, like paying your taxes or not raping and or murdering people, plus stuff is advisable to do, like, you know, attending medical appointments and taking prescribed medications. But hopefully, that sort of thing goes without saying. So I don't need to read vaguely seasonally justified newspaper articles to tell me the virtues of saying no to social events. I mean, I can't tell I, I I I can't tell you how happy I am since I stopped going to weddings many years ago. It's like my late father told me, I prefer funerals to weddings because at least you don't have have to pretend to be having fun. The wisest words he ever said to me. You got real monsters, my lord, in your cellar. Real monsters. I seen them all in the movies. You got Frankenstein. Ah. And Frankenstein's monster. Uh. You got Igor. Uh. And on the table is this beautiful chick, long blonde hair, going, Hey, sweet cake, how are you? And you also got the vampire. Why don't you join our little party? Yeah, you gonna shout it? When the feeling hits you now. Silence! Hi there! My name is Sammy Davis Jr. From a Wimple Wheel. Hey, you hold it! And you're Peter Wapit again. Yes, I know all that. Well, 
but they're still watching. Sammy Davis Jr. and Peter Lawford. Never before were they together again for the second time. What? What? Huh? I mean, huh? Salt and pepper, that's the name. And it really sucks to crime. We're standing rhyming. We're feeling sublime one more time. Here's another fine mess you got us into. I intend to see that you get busted. When a feeling hits you now. Let us pray that he is now in some place of eternal refreshment. Well, come on, don't just sit there. Oh, is he gonna get his now? What? You don't know what you're missing. I suggest you get rid of that ridiculous British accent. Doesn't suit you. Well, suppose I say to you that we're gonna meet later on down the line. We'll simonize our watches, get the whole sack of cracker jacks, going in the back. Wow! One more time. I said oh, one more time Salt and pepper One more time If you like Sammy Davis Jr. and Peter Lawford as Salt and Pepper, see them one more time in One More Time, directed by Jerry Lewis. Filmed in 1969 and released in 1970, One More Time looked to rec recreate the success of Salt and Pepper, but proved to be a somewhat different film. From the off, it pretty much sidelines the whole swinging London vibe of the previous picture, with the Salt and Pepper Club being closed down by the authorities on suspicion of violating various regulations within minutes of the titles finishing. With their assets frozen, Sammy Davis Jr.'s Charlie Salt and Peter Lawford's Chris Pepper are left scrabbling around trying to find the money to pay a fine or face six months in prison. Pepper naturally turns to his twin brother, Lord Pepper, and it was alluded to in the previous film that he was the black sheep of a wealthy, connected family. As always seems to be the case in cinema, his twin, although also played by, by Lawford, is his complete opposite and disapproves of his lifestyle and friends. While agreeing to pay Salt and Pepper's fines, he insists that in return they leave the country for good and that Chris Pepper gives up any claim to the family money or estates. Before any of this can happen, Lord Pepper is murdered. Chris Pepper finds him and decides to swap places with him, not even telling Charlie Salt of his subterfuge. He then decamps to the family seat in the vague hope of finding out why his brother was killed, with Charlie who thinks that he, Lord Pepper, murdered Chris. Every English upper-class country life's cliché is run through and mistaken identities and various hijinks involving Davis and Law for the Bound. Which is pretty much the entire film. Except for the revelation that Lord Pepper had been working for Interpol to crack a diamond smuggling ring in Africa, but had double-crossed them to work with the smugglers, then double-crossed them in order to abscond with a fortune in diamonds, which is why everybody is trying to kill him or his brother pretending to be him. As can be gathered from this synopsis, in contrast to Salt and Pepper, the thriller part of this comedy thriller has been relegated to being virtually a subplot. Indeed, there are times when it feels like an afterthought, as the film instead focuses on the comedy part, 
which largely consists of a series of zany set pieces, sometimes bordering on the surreal and involving lots of physical comedy. The influence of the director, Jerry Lewis, yes, that Jerry Lewis, seems clear here. There are times when it feels as if he's trying to make a Jerry Lewis film without Jerry Lewis in it. And it feels, at times, as if Lewis is trying to make Sammy Davis his on-screen proxy, as he is involved in most of the slapstick set pieces. Lawford, consequently, feels as if he's being relegated to a secondary role for most of the film. In his Lord Pepper persona, he seems to have been forced very much into the role of straight man to Davis, shades of Lewis's partnership with Dean Martin, when Martin seemed ever more marginalised until Lewis finally ditched him and went solo. While some of these sequences are mildly amusing, most have little or no relevance to the plot, not moving the story along at all. Eventually, in a sequence in which Davis finds a secret panel in the castle library, which leads to a dungeon occupied by Frankenstein's laboratory, complete with Peter Cushing as the Baron and Christopher Lee as a vampire, but definitely not Dracula for legal purposes, these comic interludes finally tumble over into complete irrelevance. The focus on these comedic interludes means that, compared to salt and pepper the action sequences in one more time take on a secondary role. For sure, those that are present are competently staged. A fight with heavies in Lord Pepper's London flat, a horseback chase in the course of a hunt, culminating in a shootout in a country pub, for example, but none can really compare to the car chase or the various fights and shootouts in salt and pepper. The wrap-up of the plot feels pretty perfunctory and is followed by a fourth wall-breaking final scene in which Sammy Davis Jr. and Peter Lawford, as Davis and Lawford rather than Salt and Pepper, directly address the audience and discuss their next film. It just feels like a step too far and undermines the integrity of the whole film, which isn't to say that the film didn't already have, a, have problems, with Lawford in effect playing a different character for much of the film is seen separate from Davis, and it seems most of his scenes being separate from Davis. There are few opportunities for the interplay and banter between the Salt and Pepper characters that have been a key feature of the earlier film. The relative neglect of the thriller elements means that One More Time lacks any strong adversaries for Davis and Lawford. Where Salt and Pepper boasted John LeMajorio's ruthless spymaster and Michael Bates' Inspector Crabbe as antagonist, the bad guys behind the smuggling ring in one more time remain shadowy figures, never really established as proper characters. As a result, there is little, little sense of peril for the main characters. The film does have some positive aspects, though. The ditching of the whole swinging 60s background early on was undoubtedly wise. By 1969, it was obvious that the whole cycle was running out of steam. And, and to give it a central part in a film slated for a 1970 release would immediately have given the movie a dated feel. Like Salt and Pepper, One More Time's supporting cast boasts a, boasts a plethora of familiar British character actors. While Michael Bates' Inspector Crabbe might have vanished, he's replaced by Leslie Sands' Inspector Croc, Alan Cuthbertson and Anthony Nichols play Interpol chiefs, while Percy Herbert, Bill Maynard and Dudley Sutton turn up as heavies and John Wood is a chauffeur. Despite the emphasis upon would-be madcap set pieces, 
Some of the humour from the first film continues in one more time. The race jokes and Sammy Davis' confusion over British colloquialisms, for instance. This time he misinterprets an inquiry as to whether Lord Pepper is still holding his ball or whether he's going to drop it. Moreover, like the first film, it does look good, with great production values and impressive locations. The castle that doubled for the military college in Salt and Pepper here doubles as the Pepper family castle. Ultimately, though, Michael Pertwee's script is scuppered by Jerry Lewis's direction and his relentless focus on slapstick comedy rather than wit, clever dialogue and plot development. He just seemed incapable of integrating any of the film's elements into a satisfactory whole. Even Davis's musical numbers feel forced. In Salt and Pepper, they are staged as part of his nightclub act, but in one more time they jarringly seem to come out of nowhere. In a contemporary newspaper interview, interestingly, actress Fiona Lewis, who was cast in the film, described Lewis as an egomaniac. And when the film appeared, she was absent, her scenes apparently cut in their entirety by Lewis. The film as it stands would seem to back up her assessment of the director, though, as Lewis's direction seems designed to force the film into his own image, a slapstick comedy with an irritating tendency to sentimentality when it comes to the relationship between the two characters, the two central characters. It isn't that One More Time isn't entertaining. In parts, it is certainly enjoyable, largely thanks to the presence of Davis and Lawford and a strong supporting cast. But as a sequel to Salt and Pepper, it's pretty disappointing. Lacking most of the elements, strong and interesting plot, amusing dialogue, action set pieces, for instance, which had made that film so likeable. Still, it does have a good opening, as Salt and Pepper drive through 1969 London and open top Rolls Royce as the opening title's role. Unfortunately, it's pretty much all downhill after that. Take one packet of phyllo pastry from Sainsbury's, cut the pastry sheets into squares, then place three squares on top of each other to make a 12-pointed star. Now put a generous tablespoon of Sainsbury's mincemeat in the centre of the pastry, then grate on some orange peel. Next, carefully pick up the pastry corners and press together to form a parcel. Arrange on a baking tray and brush with melted butter. Cook in a moderate oven for 15 minutes until golden, when ready, dust with icing sugar and serve hot or cold. Personally, I can't resist a little Sainsbury's ice cream, too. Well, I mean, it is Christmas. <laughs> Sainsbury's, everyone's favourite ingredient. Countdown to Christmas at Comet with a host of giveaway prices. A 12-place setting dishwasher for less than £300. A Panasonic VHSC camcorder for under £500. And a twin-speed video that's below £170. The Comet Christmas Countdown. Great presents at giveaway prices. You know where to come. You know, the sheer madness of Christmas shopping seemed to kick in with full force this week. I was just trying to do my normal weekly shopping on Monday, for instance, only to find myself confronted by empty shelves at the first supermarket I visited. We're not talking about seasonal items here, but regular everyday items I was trying to buy. In the end, I had to visit no less than four different supermarkets 
to get what I wanted. Two of them were branches of Lidl. We have three of them in total in Crabchester. There seem to be marked differences in the shopping patterns of aficionados of these two branches, even amongst those in the grip of Christmas shopping madnesses. Different shelves were empty in each of them. But what drives people to engage in this annual insanity? After all, the shops are only going to be closed for a couple of days. In some cases, only one day. There's quite a few are going to, are going to reopen on Boxing Day. So panic buying seems a little over the top. That said, Christmas Day itself, of course, feels like a deadline, demanding that we all have everything in place in order to create the perfect day and avoid disappointment. Leaving some stuff until after the day itself feels like a failure because that's the thing. We've sold the concept of a perfect Christmas that has to include certain ingredients. If any of them are missing, then you're a complete and utter failure. It's entirely driven by retailers' needs to generate sales, of course, in order to prop up profits. Now, at this point, I should be telling you of being smug about how superior I am and you know how I can resist these blatant attempts to manipulate me during this season of goodwill. Except that during this last week, I found myself caught up in the madness. I mean, only on Wednesday, I found myself in a branch of Lidl in a different town at quarter to ten in the evening, looking for a particular item I had decided that I needed in order to complete my Christmas. Now, I should add here, I didn't go out of town specifically to try and obtain it. I was there visiting relatives and the little was on my way home, so I decided to just seize the opportunity. Failing to get it there, they'd sold out. As I had a branch at home, I'd tried on the way out of my, my own town earlier in the day. So the next day, I found myself driving around three supermarkets back here in Crapchester, one little and two oldies, in search of the item. I eventually found it, ironically, in the Aldi where I thought I'd bought it several weeks ago. And I should explain here that I hadn't realised that this year Aldi had two versions of said product on sale and that I had unwittingly picked up the one I didn't want. I didn't realise mistake until some time later. Instead of trying to exchange it, I gave it to someone else who liked that variety, confident I could get a replacement of the correct type. But by the time I tried, the Christmas shopping madness was upon us. I cannot deny that getting this item became something of an obsession with me. I became unreasonably determined that I was going to correct my error, no matter how many littles and oldies I had to go to, and no matter where they were. It was utterly stupid, and I'm sure that I wouldn't have been so obsessed had it not been Christmas, and this hadn't been a seasonal item. But like I say, it's the utter madness of the season that grips us all this time of year, and none of us, none of us, are immune. And of course, you'll notice that I didn't actually tell you exactly what it was I was looking for. Because, you know something? I think I should, I should be able to retain some kind of air of mystery about myself and not reveal all of my Christmas habits. <laughs>